veil torn, a stone rolled away, God not bound to a temple, and Jesus not to a grave. Do not cling to stone or bury your heart in tombs. Loving Jesus is just loving a person and God, the great wide world around you. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. All right, this is the actual full first episode of Heath in Pursuit podcast. And uh, quite excited to be here with a special guest today, William Turbyfield. He is one of my closest friends. We've been through uh, not a lot, you and I together, but we've actually been through like different periods of life and different thought. You know, we, we're different people than when we first met and we still really value and care about each other. Yes, I would say we've both been near the other one whilst the other was going through stuff <laughs> at different times, multiple occasions. So, yeah. yeah, we don't have too many shared war stories, but I've heard yours and I think you've heard mine. Yeah, I, yeah. And that poem that, that just started the episode, like, give me some backstory on that. That was really cool. Uh, there's a long story behind that, um, but the quick version is a book called The Divine Magician, written by Peter Rollins, opened my eyes to a new way of looking not new to me, a new way of looking at the resurrection. And he framed it the way people often frame a, a magic trick. Um, and if you're familiar with the movie The Prestige, the idea of the pledge, the turn, and then the prestige are mm-hmm. the, the acts of a magic trick. There's a promise, and then there's something that happens where it looks like the promise went wrong, and then something's revealed. We're like, oh, that's so much better than the promise because it's it's heightened. Yeah, And that's the drama, that's the flow, the narrative of a magic trick. So... In the book, The Divine Magician, my reading of it anyway, was he framed the resurrection story of Jesus like a magic trick and highlighted the imagery of the veil and the temple being torn. And his, his read, well, my reading of his reading was that when the veil was pulled back, typically you would see something. You would see the sawed in half assistant now suddenly sure. restored. You would see, oh, Jesus is alive. He's not really dead. He's back here. But in the great reality of it, what it really seems to have happened is that the curtain was pulled back and the great prestige was God wasn't back then. Hmm. He's he, been everywhere. He yeah. Was, yeah, he was everywhere else. <laughs> he was never back there. And yeah. Jesus is great. Like, if you view Jesus as trying to reinvent the temple system or tear down the temple system or go into the new phase, he's addressing, yeah, this thing you've, you've built your life on is not accurate. Hmm. It's so much better. Yeah. And so long story short, that that's been in my head for years just that idea of that reading of that book. And yesterday out of the blue someone mentioned or made an allusion to the stone that rolled away and the curtain that was torn. And I sat up in my chair and and told my wife immediately said, "Yeah, Jesus wasn't in the grave." Hmm. Because he didn't want to give people another temple. He didn't want a monument. He didn't want a place for people to come and say, this is where Jesus is. Jesus is like, no, no, no. God's not behind the veil. He's everywhere else. And I'm not here in the grave. I'm in every person you see. So if you want to love me, don't come to my grave and leave flowers. Go to the person you're looking to and love them. Huh. And I, huh. I, I won't say I wept, but I was on the verge of like, 
one of those like, oh, it's so simple. That yeah. seems to be what it is. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wrote that as a, a way to remember it. Like I, these things pop in my head from time to time, and I, I always forget them unless I Write fortune them down, cookie yeah. them somehow. It's not that Jesus wasn't in the grave. It's that he, he was there too, but he's everywhere. Like it's, yeah. it's not like he was vacant from that spot, but everywhere else. He's, right. It's it's all encompassing. But why are humans so prone to want to to go back to the grave or to build a monument or to like what do you think? Is that a control thing on our part or is it some what's going on? I I can't speak to the great psychology of the human race, but I think there's a lot of reasons. I think people will return to a grave or a monument or a, an Ebenezer. I think is yeah. the the biblical phrase because it's something that has shared meaning. Okay. Like if I'm wandering the desert and I bump into someone who speaks my language, the world is now amazing. Hmm. And so if I'm walking down the street and I think, hey, this guy rose from the dead and that's where I find my joy and peace and I can't really prove it because it happened a long time ago and it's this complicated story and I have to kind of rely on faith. Yeah. And it's weird and it's iffy and it's icky and it's probably not true. Oh, wait, there's another person who kind of believes that too. The world just got a lot better. So having that shared experience like makes you feel known. Mm-hmm. And I, we might get into this later. I think that's a, an illusion. I don't know if that's quite how that really works, but it gives us this sense of being known. Okay. And Western civilization has a story that involves a person rising from the grave. And that has been one of the most unifying myths or story. And I don't mean myths derogatory for sure. future reference. Anytime I say myth, I can't think of a, a word that I hold in higher reverence. I think myth uh, is maybe the most important thing involved in the human species. So wow. the myth of Jesus is a shared cultural touchstone that gives community, that gives unity, that gives joy, gives peace. And if you kind of have to pretend the laws of nature were broken in order to like go along with the narrative, hmm. I think that's what people do. Like, I think a lot of people don't, and yeah. they break from it. And they go to the, they find out this thing's been a deception and it's a lie and it's garbage and I want nothing to do with it. Hmm. But I feel like I've come out the other side of that for a while where it's like, oh, yeah, the stories are amazing. And they're actually more true than true. They're just not real. Hmm. I'm thinking about the trajectory when we talked here at the beginning about how I knew you a couple of years ago. I mean, we met now six and a half years ago. And when I first met you, you were telling me that you're from... Uh, Alabama, Lick Skillet, right? Which is yes, an actual sir. city. It's yeah. not, you were not joking when you said that. No, no. Licks, yeah. An actual lovely place. Lick Skillet, Alabama. What's the zip code there? Do you know? I do not recall. I've not sent myself mail there in a long time. <laughs> but it, it's not far from the, the Tennessee border. It's like two, three, five miles south. Okay. It's pretty close. Oh, yeah. And we used to live 53 miles north of that Tennessee, Alabama border in Spring Hill. Not so right. we were not far. We no. grew up close to each other. Uh, and then when I actually first met you, you were teaching a Bible study in a in a like a small group, and now you've released a book called Thoughts of a Dying Believer. Full title, please. <laughs> okay, this is this is great. The full title is Thoughts of a Dying Believer, a post literal novel about the story of the Christ, which is Amen. an incredible title. Thank you. Of one I'm sure you're still very proud. I love it. Every word in there is, imp- well, I won't say every word is important, uh, but every word in there is uh, relevant to what I'm trying to make that book about. Okay, and so when we were talking, uh, you said you'd be pissed off if, if you weren't, if you didn't get an invite to my show as a guest <laughs> in the first five episodes, and I said, you're going to be my first guest, actually. What should we talk about? Because every time we get together, you've got something mulling around in your head that is fascinating and new and causes me to think 
differently about the things that I typically would accept as normalcy. Um, but we saw, we, we both decided like, Hey, this book would be a really good thing to get into. Um, so maybe give a little bit of background of, of like why, you know, like writing a book is a labor of love. Even if you're a writer, like to put something out there, put energy in, not every idea you come up with actually manifests itself on, on paper, but somehow this did. And one of the most creatively written like books I've ever read, it's written like a, like a play and there's scenes and there's acts and there's all kinds of different fonts and it looks like a movie script. And, um, so maybe a little bit of a background of where you came up with this, what was going on in your head when you thought about writing this, and then we can sure from there. Uh, well, I can open with this and I think this might help frame that book. Um, I did not set out to write thoughts of a dying believer. Okay. Uh, I did not have a goal in mind and then work toward it. And nor do I think the book has an argument to make. I'm not saying at the end of this book you will agree with me or at least understand why you sure. disagree with me. It, it, it was ins- The reason the book exists is I went through what I've now called the deconstruction period of my life. It's still ongoing. But sure. this, a very, I was very self-aware of the parts of me that were changing or the things I was going to have to let go of. And uh, writing is a hobby of mine, but also therapeutic, very cathartic. I think that's probably true for most people. Sure. And I, over the course of two, well, the book took two years, but I'll say over the course of about nine months, I just produced volumes of shorts of four-page dialogue scenes between God and Satan, um, a couple people arguing over politics, something like I, I was trying to get something out, these frustrating sure. things. And this and, came to a cost, right? Because you left a a decent career yeah yeah to, to really pursue this type of writing well unfortunately that, that's 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 a very romantic way of saying it that's not how it happened okay. i i <laughs> did leave a, a a comfortable job with very fine people um and set out to write a book okay that is not this book okay uh after i set out to write that book the deconstruct the the breakdown the deconstruction the oh woe is me started happening so that mm. book got put aside and this other stuff started coming out. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of things I wrote that are not in that book. There are a lot of things I wrote that would not be appropriate to be in that book for various reasons. Sure. But at the end of a certain amount of time when I felt like I was not healed but just stable, had a better sense of what I felt about things, right. I wanted to kind of represent that time period. I wanted an Ebenezer. I wanted to be able to look back and say, here's my totem. And I, but I had notes and journals of stuff. Sure. So I, I scrawled through. Scroll. I scrolled through, and uh, and it, that part was really cathartic because there were things I had written very uh, um, emphatically okay. that I was now like, oh, that's done. I don't. I'm over that. Like it was good huh. to go back and say, oh, that was a difficult time for me, and I'm I moved past it, and so it was a, a cleansing of sorts. Okay, but I kept finding these these pieces stayed around. I thought, oh, that's. Not like that's good, but like that resonates with me. Yeah. And as I was talking to Stephanie about them, I my Stephanie's my wife. I was talking to her about them. I started seeing an arc hmm. in in what I had. And so what Thoughts of a Dying Believer is is me taking the cream of the cathartic crop and then like a sculpture fitting them or like a puzzle fitting them together in a way that I thought was uh not entertaining, but compelling. Like as you yeah. read it, you're like, oh, I, there's a flow to this. And so the end result is, and I've used this metaphor or analogy before, 
it's like you're up at night at 2 a.m. flipping through the channels back and forth between like five or six ones. Yeah. And in the morning, you're like, oh, all of those shows told the same thing. Not like they were repeating each other, but like channel one was part was A, and then channel 40 was B, and then channel yeah. 32 was C, but then you had to go back to channel one to get D. Like that's, that's the vibe of it, which I, I will argue uh, jokingly, but half seriously, is not that dissimilar, I think, from how the most uh, holy books are compiled. Yeah. Like you have a slew of material, and then someone comes along and edits it to tell a narrative. This, like I said, just tells the narrative. It has a very unsatisfying resolution uh, <laughs> yeah, from a narrative point of view, but it's supposed to launch you into what hopefully this discussion might bring up. How much of this would you say, like now looking back, that you're like, I, I don't really agree with that anymore? Like, so, have, have you moved on from this to something else now, or is this still kind of like your? So here's here's uh, let me preface what I'm about to say because it's going to sound megalomaniacal. I want everyone to know I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's the first line of the book. I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't. Sure. I'm, this isn't me like being falsely humble. I'm an idiot. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Sure. And so uh, you're very convincing, though. Thank you. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. What was your question? Yeah, what you don't, what you don't agree with anymore. Is there anything? Yeah, in there I, that... I don't agree or disagree with anything in the book and that's why this is a weird thing to say because that sounds pretentious um mm. I, I think it does yeah sure but it's not that i i think of this book and i've gone i've revisited it since and i've read it multiple times i've done live readings of it yeah. and i've meditated not meditated but you know my private time i've sat down and read it sure because it was for a dramatic way of saying it my soul on paper so when i revisit that it's it's still kind of raw but i think of it more like a hollow deck on Star Trek or like a jungle gym where you go there to exercise or to work out or to think about stuff, not to be convinced. And so there's nothing in there I disagree with. I, I have gone back to that book and like read it multiple times and come away with stuff I did not intend. And the best way, because huh. it is a play, like that's yep. the structure of it. And I, the way I've phrased it to Stephanie is, as an actor, I have discovered things that the writer did not intend. Hmm. And there's a couple where it's like, oh, that if I was performing this, this is how I would interpret that line, which is not what I meant when I wrote it. Um, for instance, slight spoilers, there's a section where the character Yeshua is telling a version of the prodigal son story. Mm -hmm. And he keeps getting interrupted. And he's interrupted by the shepherd, by the opposition, and then by a merchant. And I just had those in there because they were pre-existing characters in the scene. And I needed some kind of interruption to happen just for the flow. Right. What I realized one day when I was reading it, and I don't think I meant to do this, is after the merchant interrupts him, the very next line Yeshua comes up with directly addresses financial needs. When, huh. when the shepherd interrupts him, the very next thing Jesus says addresses compassion and welcoming people back to the flock. That wasn't how I intended it, but those, the right people, yeah, like I literally it. just could have changed the name because the line is, is irrelevant. It's just there. They're interrupting him. But because earlier they had established where well, he's financially uh, motivated and this guy, like, so that's just an example of like, yeah. oh, I surprised myself. Is that a weird thing to come to as an, as an artist? Because I don't know if there's much that I've written. I mean, I did an album five or six years ago that now I would say I, I disagree with much of what I wrote there from a, from a theological sort of lens uh, that I, I wish I'm actually would consider re-recording that with new lyrics that kind of fit where I'm at currently. But I don't think I've I've written much that actually surprises me 
later on when I reread what I work on, because I typically will just release something and then never go back to it. Uh, what's it like coming to that awareness of, because we were talking about the same thing with Stranger Things, or uh, Stranger Than Fiction the other day, that Will Ferrell mm-hmm. movie, um, that you found a really cool narrative oh. to that movie that is rocking your world. Rock my world. Stranger Than Fiction was a movie I enjoyed Yeah, when it came out. I saw it, so when it came out, like 2008, 12, around then, yep. uh, I saw it a couple days ago, and it's now my second favorite movie of all time. Ten minutes into the movie, I had decided it was my second favorite movie because something had clicked. Maybe not what the writer intended, but I thought, oh, oh, that's how I'm going to see this story forever. And it, it not only did I find it, it didn't make the movie better, it made it more universally relevant. Okay. You know, like the movie's yeah. still funny, acting's still great. It didn't like have to make up for anything. It was just a new spin, like my version of the movie, not yeah. your version. But like, oh, this is my version of it. So is that a weird thing coming to like as an as an artist when you when you've written a book and then to go back and go, oh, I'm finding deeper meaning in this now or different meaning in it now than I did when I was originally intending. It's certainly not something I ever imagined would happen because when you write. I presume when you write, well, no, actually, I take that back. I take that back. Um, I would never have imagined that I would still benefit from a piece of art I had made years after. Yeah. But I, I can imagine seeing it through new eyes or, or like having a new take on it. I would imagine the most common one is that you end up hating something or you mm. end up disagreeing with it, like sure. you were just saying. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not often surprised. Yeah. By it. By your own work. I even love like the the garden is the, in the beginning is to, I, I, I there's so much in here I don't want to give away the concept of even in beauty there's evil and evil intention in perfect places right and or that's a different side of the story than what we would typically be taught in a like in a Christian faith kind of background and so I'm curious on how you started connecting the dots and that deconstruction from from seeing the garden as this sacred holy something to be preserved keep the bad guys out, keep the good things in mm-hmm. to, no, it's not, it's not that clean. And actually there's evil in the garden anyway. Well, let me, let me say this about that. Um, the biggest thing that has resulted, I'll say from my deconstruction with regard to the Bible and other doctrinal issues okay. is I, I don't think anything can be correctly or misinterpreted. So I don't think the story of Eden has one interpretation or one meaning or one lesson. I don't think the story of Moses has one reading, sure. one intention, one lesson. And that actually, to be clear, that is a more proper view of how to approach a holy text than than we're typically with. I mean, when That's you look at I the think. rabbis and stuff, they'd say, if you can't get various meanings out of each line, you're not even putting in the intellectual like in, like effort exactly. to yeah, pursue exactly. the text. And so a lot of my issues were uh, motivated by distrust. There were people I, ha- I was resentful of because they had told me the quote-unquote right answers. Okay. And I was finding them to no longer be reliable sources of morals or information. And so I found this... So at first I kind of resented the stories of the Bible because okay. I thought they were... But being able to re-engage them as myths, as to what you were alluding to, get a couple people together and start talking about the story, and it's not the right interpretation, it's the interpretation of that group. Or maybe a right interpretation. Or, right? A, or a relevant interpretation sure. is maybe uh, a productive, a life-giving interpretation. And the story of Adam and Eve 
and I, I'm going to say some st- again. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think what I'm about to say is correct. I don't think the word sin appears in the first three chapters or four chapters of Genesis. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's true. So if the word sin doesn't appear, get out of here with original sin. Uh, if they didn't do anything wrong, if they didn't sin, right, then that changes the narrative. So it's worth discussing. Hmm. Because later on, we've said, well, they did this thing. And they, well, yes, there are many interpretations you've come to. But if you look at it cleanly, what you see are humans okay. who want to grow in knowledge. And then they do. And like, oh, I don't want to do that. Life's awful. Hmm. Life's horrible. It's awful. They jumped ahead and read Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. They got what King Solomon got. And they wanted to hide from God. And so God comes and says, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's awful. You got to leave the garden now. You're, you're leaving kindergarten. You're leaving the nursery. You're leaving preschool. We're taking the training wheels off. You're ready for adulthood. And it's worse than you thought. I'm sorry. That's the game. Huh. Now, that's more of a downtrodden or a, maybe a bummer of an interpretation of it. But if I exclude the rest of the Bible, that's what the story is. And why is that relevant? Because that's how people heard the story for the first 5,000 years of its existence. They didn't hear the other 65 books. They heard, oh, yeah, that's what happens when you go for knowledge. You learn more, and then you have to deal with what you learn. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I've never put that, the discussion of the first here is not hearing the rest of the story. Yeah, why would they? Even if Genesis was the entire Bible. Like, yeah, if, if that's it all... sucks. <laughs> I mean... Well, no, actually, so uh, may, the one day a book I will not write will be a retelling of all of Genesis and how it's amazing. Hmm. Because, every, again, if you ignore doctrine, ignore what people have been telling you for 2,000 years and pick up the thing for the first time, everything before Abraham is all overture for everything else that happens. Because the story of Abraham and his line is kind of a retelling of those main bits. Huh. Like uh, Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel fascinating like and they're just these main archetypes that happen so broadly speaking again i don't know what i'm talking about this is just fun uh ab and eve are the birth of knowledge of anxiety of forethought of mm-hmm. anticipation of the knowledge of death and it's awful so they have two sons one who's like yeah i'm gonna go out in the world i'm gonna shepherd things i'm gonna care for stuff it's gonna be tough but i'm gonna dance with this thing it's gonna work out and it's gonna balance sure the other one's like no i'm gonna stay still and i'm gonna plant my <laughs> and that's how this is gonna work uh-oh Bad harvest time. So now, what happens? You have to adapt. Yeah. You didn't make the right bargain with the future. Like, you bet all on this way, and it was wrong. But don't you know you'll be accepted if you do what is right? So rechange yourself and get back into the thing. Hmm. Well, rather than do that, let me kill the person doing better than I am. Let me lower the bar. Hmm. I just described human-like behavior. That's yeah. all of us. So now, Cain, it wants to be killed. If people want to kill him because he's angry, he goes, I tell you what. Tell you what, man. I'll keep you safe. You come to my city, I'll make sure no one hurts you, and if they hurt you, I'll hurt them more. So now the guy who killed the, who killed the first person, the murderer, is protecting other people. Hmm. Not because he wants to do good, but because he doesn't want people to kill him. Wow. Okay? So now you go to Noah. The floods of chaos. That's what we're experiencing right now in 2019 in America. Yeah, I was going to ask if you saw a connection between... So much. Yeah. Like, it's a flood. Of, forget water coming down. No one knows what the hell's going on. And so uh-huh. Noah is a person who's like, you know what? I'm going to wall myself off from everyone. Go to hell, world. I'm going to let you drown. I'm going to take care of me and my own. And he does it. 
and it works. But guess what? Yeah. Noah gets drunk afterwards because the guilt is too much. He couldn't do it. Like the realization that he cut himself off from the world and let them drown. He was going to start again. Can't do that. Hmm. Then you have Babel. Babel, like, you know what? Let's build the greatest empire in the world. Let's, we're going to be awesome. We're going to make us great. And the rest of the world, God, is like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Yeah. If you, if you want to be the big man on campus, the world's gunning for you. But also, if you get an empire of 10 people, they're going to get along great. An empire of a million people won't know the other 999,999. You're going to start breaking apart. The empire gets too big to sustain one identity. So just like Babel fell because people couldn't understand one another, it wasn't yeah. that God snapped his fingers. It was they grew apart. Huh. Just like people in Maine and Florida and California live in different countries. <laughs> it's almost as if they were speaking different languages. It's almost <laughs> as if they were speaking different languages. Yeah. So you have this open overture. Oh, and then Abraham and Isaac. Come on. this could... <laughs> Oh, we'll get Abraham and Isaac if you want. But I, I, when I was viewing those stories from that angle, and again, yeah. just trying to think, of what, so my process was this, view them in isolation yep. and then try to apply them to the world I see around me sure. today. What's consistent? Why would this be, if the story does not lead to me dying and going to heaven, what other good does it have? Hmm. And so I started, I started finding what I thought were some good life lessons, uh, universal life lessons. Sure. Uh, and so that kind of inspired some of the reinterpretations of which I really appreciate too, because there is an element of, of what I, I've been kind of wrestling through lately is all the texts that I've been hearing preached or taught or discussed uh, have been from middle-aged, fairly well-to-do white men that uh, have studied some guys that have read this interpretation in English for hundreds of years and 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 I've recently started pursuing some of the like Jewish alternative like readings of the text, and it's mind blowing. Like when you look at what Abraham and Isaac to the first hearers would have actually heard in that story is is not that it's a challenge of of God of who he who Abraham loves more, God or Isaac, but it's you have a series of gods to the first hearers that were demanding, and so you get the crops, and it's like. If you don't, if you keep the gods at bay and you you please them, then you get good crops, and if not, you give them what they demand, so you get good crops, so that you and your whole family doesn't die. So, so when you have a a request of killing your first son, that would be a totally normal request of the demanding yep. gods. That wasn't shocking. What was shocking would be that God steps in and provides a sacrifice and says, "I'm not like all other gods," right? Um, but even as you're talking, when I'm thinking of the garden, I'm thinking of Babel, I'm thinking of Noah locking everyone out, building a wall essentially to keep the bad guys out. If Genesis was the only Bible you ever read, it would make a lot of sense to what's going up around yeah. you, right? Yeah. And again, that's why they exist. And that's why we remember them. Like there's infant trillion, I make up a number of stories and legends out there, huh. but they all go away just like leaves and grass. The ones that stick around, stick around because they're effective, because yeah. they're, they are easy to remember, because they're, the parts of the stories that weren't important get left out. That's mm. why the story of Cain and Abel is like five lines. It's so short, but it like contains so much in it. Uh, I have an have a observation about uh, Abraham and Isaac. Let's do it. Uh, and I will say this again. Uh, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm sure this is out of canon or out of sync with many... Uh, thoughts on this but if you look at the the biography of Abraham like his whole life story 
I find uh, great, well, I guess within regards to the faith of Abraham, him sacrificing his son, him being willing to sacrifice this son, I read as Abraham saying, I didn't do any of this for my legacy. Hmm. Everything I've done, helping Lot, helping all these people, like everything I've done wasn't so I would have a kid, wasn't so that I would be remembered. Okay, God, you mean I'm going to die and I'll be forgotten because I won't have any kids? Okay, Hmm. I'm here for you. And God saying, now you're making it through. Hmm. Don't do it for what comes after because you're not going to see it. Just do it for what is, and that's the beauty. That's the game. Hmm. The game is not, oh, I'm storing up so that I'll live forever and eternity. He's like, no, no, I got 50 years. I'm going to make them awesome. Yeah. I'm going to su- suck up this thing deep. I'm going to love it. And it comes to the point of like, hey, yeah, you're going to lose a kid. Hey, you're not going to get married. Oh, hey, those people are going to forget you. Hmm. Hey, you know what? You're going to get nailed to a tree. Yeah. Are you still going to love me? Yeah. Are you still in the game? Yeah. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking even about the faith aspect too, because because it does seem the faith challenge for Abraham and Isaac is also similar to you could say like Noah spending all his life building his own empire, though in a sense, right? Like he had the faith that something was coming when everyone else is like, "What the heck are you doing, man?" And he's like, well, "I'm." It's a dark world, right? Like that, there's an element of he gave his life to build his empire. And it protected him, but look at how his legacy ended yeah. at the end. Like it didn't end so well. Noah. So is in, Noah's three sons. Yeah. Think about think again. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Right. I don't. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but think about this in like archetypal universal terms. Okay. You have a flood coming. You have someone stepping in to resolve the issue, and get past the flood. Then he has three sons, or he gets drunk and has three sons. Two sons try to protect him, and one. Uh, makes fun of him and ridicules him. That is the cycle. Hmm. It's chaos. And then a government or a body comes in and, and settles it, brings peace. Hmm. And we go forward. But then someone's like, hey, hey, we killed a lot of Native Americans to get this country. Hmm. And the other two people are like, no, 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 forget it. It was a flood guy. We had to do that. He, you don't know what he had to do. It was, he would have died. He saved this guy. He built the ark. Give him some respect. Hmm. And the brother's like, no, man, he... He killed a lot of people. Oh. And so you have these uh, common cycles, I think, in human history where you're confronted with a chaotic situation and you have to address it. And whatever you do, at the end of it, people will judge you for it, hmm. right or wrong. You're going to have people who will find everything wrong with what you did and have people who will like what you did. And then they take the baton from there. Like hmm. that's the end of the game. You only get to do your little bit. I'm wondering too if like with the story of Noah, how as you're talking, I was thinking about like the parallel and I never connected the dots, but how most of uh how most people's thoughts of the acceptance of the Christ mimics Noah shutting the doors to the ark. People begging for mercy, like, Hey, I was wrong, I screwed this thing up, you were right. Please, like, show mercy and everything I was always taught was like no, you'd take that last breath, you know, and you could justify like, well, what if they're 16 and age of accountability? I mean, the, the, the target kept moving. But for the most part, it's like, no, if you weren't wise enough, if you didn't get enough wisdom to accept the Christ by the time you took this last breath, and then you start, you you finally get to see like, no, the storm is coming. I was wrong. Let me help. Like, nope, door shut. Game over. You die. 
See, I like uh, this is jumping to the end of that book, um, Thoughts of a Dying Believer. I think Jesus, the, the teacher, the archetype, the myth, the God, however you want to frame him, came to bring an ark. I think the gospel is an ark, hmm. but it's a, a compassionate, life-giving ark. It's not one that walls us off and protects us from the storm. Mm-hmm. It's the one that shows us how to walk on the water. Hmm. It's the one that says, no, no, I'm out in the mess. I'm out in this. I'm taking the hits, and I'm helping the people. Hmm. I, that's what I'm here for. I'm the salt. I'm here to care for people. I'm not here to hide myself away from anyone. I'm the part of the world that's the immune system. I'm the part of the world that's the white blood cells. I'm the part of the world that comes to fix you. Hmm. That's, what I, that's the Christ. I make things new. I don't judge them. I don't condemn them. I don't destroy them. I don't punish them. I look at them and say, how can I help? Hmm. And I think that is the arc. Because the big reveal is, you, know, you don't get to the other side. Like the flood's never over. Hmm. You sometimes have peaceful days, but it's always a flood, man. It's been going on for 60 million years. You think it's going to get resolved during your 30-year lifespan? Your 50-year lifespan? No, 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 no. The rain has been widely forecast. Stop, like, hiding away and get used to the water. I think that's that's what Jesus came to do. So why do you think Jesus um, is—what separates him from other great teachers that would pursue, like, a Gandhi or— is it just we have better uh, records of what he said? Or like, what do you think makes that special? So everything I'm about to say is speculation because I'm not as thorough up, on his, thorough up on history as I would like to be. I, I think part of it is that his system worked. Hmm. Like the, my understanding is that 50, 40, 30 years after Jesus, was, Jesus walked the earth, the Jerusalem fell and there was chaos. Yeah. But the people maybe who were like really adhering to his teachings instead of the other messiahs, yeah. the ones who were actually trying to love each other and care for each other, and maybe they, they survived. Hmm. And so because everyone else was down, eh, this one had a leg up. Now, again, there's many other denominations and, and Jewish faiths and Muslim faith, countless others, so th- I'm not raising this one above. Sure. But during that particular episode, that might be why it survived and others failed. I mean, there is something beautiful and horrifying uh, about about believing enough in what you're doing that you actually let people kill you for it, right? There's got to be a little bit of staying power too. Because you see, and we see politicians that will say something and then they get funding from a certain organization and they change their mind and they, they're wishy-washy. But there also had to be some staying power of like, oh, this guy meant exactly what he said and he proved it at the cost of a horrific death to himself. Yeah. Even if it's not true, you got to give him props because totally. he believed it, right? Totally. And well, even more than that, I would believe his, or I would credit his first followers. And again, I don't know who they were individually, and some could have been crazy. Um, sure. But a man dies, and then a teacher dies, and then weeks later, his students are walking around as if he's still alive, like they're still doing what he said. Yeah, that'd be a little weird. That sounds like resurrection. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, really yeah. think about that. Like, most teachers who aren't worth it. Like when they die, like you forget about them. Yeah. But if their teaching continues and people still act like they're around, I mean, they're they still live around. On. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so like I, I think that's the resurrection. And I think not knowing the mind of those people, part of it's like, well, yeah, to your point, he was willing to die. Hmm. I guess I should be willing to die because what I'm afraid of isn't that important and I should be care about more stuff. I mean, hmm. there are many ways to parse it out. Um, and that's what I enjoy doing is imagining if I were in these situations, like, uh, doubting Thomas. Okay. 
what if the doubting Thomas, like blessed are those who believe without seeing? What if that means blessed are those who love without believing in the resurrection? Hmm. Like Thomas wouldn't love people until he saw my nails and I was walking around. These other people loved when they just liked the idea of it or when they hmm. liked my teaching. No, blessed are those who like actually love people without needing the resurrection, without needing heaven, without needing hell insurance. Blessed are those people. Those are the people who are the kingdom of God. The other people are fine. They're not bad. Sure. But that's not the good stuff. Wow. That's crazy, man. I've never connected those dots. What's rocking your world right now? Like Every time we get together, there's, there's new conversation, and I love that most of the time you don't remember what we talked about last because you've moved on and forgotten. And, but you always have something new that is like mind-blowing or <laughs> that you've figured out or... I love the texts that are like, hey, I just figured out the purpose of the universe. Yeah. Like, oh, man, good I, on you. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I need to calm down with those. I do send crazy stuff sometimes. <laughs> um, but again, it's, it's me trying to work out thoughts. And Which I love. Ideas. Yeah. Um, and I believe, like, I, I, I do defend them sometimes, but I'm, I'm pretty open about being garbage. Um, but I do appreciate, too. Like, I mean, the purpose of the show is to to hear where people are at and what they're thinking through and what they're wrestling with and... And, uh, you know, I just think closed mindedness is one of the worst, I mean, it could be possibly the most deadliest things that it ever. Yeah. I, I think, I think lying and closed mindedness are on the top five list of worst things in the world. Yeah. Um, and merely because lying is denying people access to their God given right of reality Mm -hmm. and closed minded is denying yourself the same thing. Hmm. And so that you're not on a good foundation. Yeah. And even like, worse when you're closed minded on other people who are pursuing yeah. <laughs> knowledge, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, I mean, I, know, I, I can tell you friends that once they hear this show, they're going to, I'll get texts of like, well, he's really got to be careful because he's jumped off the deep end. And I go like, no, I mean, if we're pursuing truth. That's what, yeah. God Bring it should on, let be, me know. Yeah, yeah. I'm well intentioned. I'm happy to be wrong. <laughs> um, in fact, some of my happiest times in life have been wrong because mm. I, after that, I learned something. Yeah. Um, so I do have two things I can read you real quick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that you're working on, on now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've, I think I sent these to you before, but I'm still parsing them out. Sure. And they're new for the listeners. When the son of man comes is a frequent allusion in Jesus's parables, which refer to an inevitable unveiling an apocalypse bridegroom is also often used. A common theme in these parables is that a person is being presented with a change in their circumstances. I don't think Jesus is warning us about the end times, but instead about our own individual end times. The parables are about preparing for the day when the world as you know it is gone and you are faced with judgment. Were you prepared enough, healthy enough, wise enough, kind enough to people now suddenly in power? If you're alive, then yes, good job. Well done, faithful servant. But remember, the kingdom of God is here. It's messy, and the parables help to guide us down ever-changing paths. Hmm. Every generation has felt like they were living in the end times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, like, we're not the first ones to be like, well, the, the stars are lining up perfectly, and mm. there's an increase in travel, and the mark of the beast is on your visa card, and, you know, technology. I mean, every generation since the time of Jesus, and even before, thought something's like yeah. this is coming well it, it's a bizarre th- have you ever played a role-playing game like a tabletop dungeons and dragons style role-playing no. game i won't explain it it takes too long it's awesome okay um but 
the gist is you have people who are rolling dice and making decisions. Okay. And you have a person who is the dungeon master or the game master who is telling the story. Hmm. And they're crafting the story and they're binding the story. So if you want to do something, I can say it's impossible. As the dungeon, I can shut you down. And hmm. so we're living a shared narrative. Okay. I think that's just what churches. Huh. Run by a couple of. A couple, again, people dungeon mastering. Yeah. People telling you the doctrine, telling you the narrative, and you signing off on it. You're like, okay, huh. I'll play this one. I'll yeah, play this game. He does get paid to, to study this every week. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we uh, engage those things. So I think the end times is a constant fear that the game you love most is going to end. Huh. The one you're counting on, call it Christianity, call it America, call it human, call it homo sapien, whatever, however you want to frame the grand narrative that you're in, the real grand narrative is constant, destructive, life-giving change. So if you sit still for too long, you're going to get crushed. The future is hungry and you are its food. And the fast eat the slow. Yeah. The fast eat the yeah. That's again, like that's a horrible thing to think about because you you mourn those who are uh, unfortunate or caught in a, a cycle where they can't escape. But to pretend that that's not how the world works is worse than not helping someone. Yeah. Well, and and the, I think that leads to like an escapism mentality, right? Is like let's just guys, the waves are really tough right now, but but uh, don't worry, the sea's going to get peaceful here in about thirty seconds. We just got to get through the storm right now and then we're going to be good but what a constant dangling of the carrot like that is is there any better way to control people than a promise of something a false hope that might not ever be there but you just keep living towards it it's the only way they could get people to show up to church on sunday is promise them eternal life and even then people like to sleep in it is mm -hmm. a and it, i call it a lie just because most of the people who are saying it can't vouch for it mm -hmm. like they're passing on a story they've heard i don't know Maybe, you know, as the Atlantic City song is, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe someday, I'm sorry, I've screwed up Bruce Springsteen, I'll never forgive myself. I but the line that. is, maybe someday we'll come back. Hmm. Maybe. And that may be true. Maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Maybe he did show his hold-filled hands to Thomas. Maybe he did ascend to the heavens. I wasn't there. And the people who swear that, they, that it happened sure. lose a lot of credibility because it ends up resulting on, well, it's faith. And 500 people in the book of Acts saw him. Yeah, one guy wrote Acts. Hmm. Like, what are you asking me to believe? You're asking me to believe that this book is holy writ, despite it being touched by thousands and thousands and thousands of agenda-driven people. Hmm. Like, so I'm not trusting Jesus. I'm trusting the guy who's interpreting the Bible. Like, yeah. you understand that? I'm not sure. trusting God. With whatever agenda they have. Yeah. Yeah. The person who is interpreting the Bible is the one I'm trusting. Like I hear people, a common refrain as I've been talking about, and I admit it's nonsense, all this crazy stuff I talk about, but anytime I disagree with some people, sorry, not anytime, sometimes when I agree with certain people, I will hear the phrase, well, you're just trying to be your own God. Hmm. And I think that's such a, a lazy, dismissive line hmm. because they only say that when they disagree with me. Yeah. So what they're saying is they'd rather they be my God hmm. or that I make something else my God and ignore the fact that every single conceivable God has to pass through the filter of my perception. I'm only in charge of my perception. And even then, I barely have any control over it. 
Hmm. So I have to guard that. I have to set the watchman. Yeah. I have to be in charge. I have to be my, not be my own God, sure. but be my Lord. Like my brain, my thought, yeah. my decision making, I'm responsible for those decisions. And so I think making another person your Lord, another doctrine, another Bible text that I wasn't around when it was written and I don't understand it. And you're trying to understand it in a Western context yeah, in America. On, and, yeah, yeah. That, I think that's making people twice a convert of hell. You convince them of hell, and then you know you deprive them of any freedom from living a life that's free. So now not only do I believe in a fake hell, I'm living in the real hell trying to abide by this crazy, this crazy nonsense that doesn't make sense, that bounces off the world, that my neighbors disagree with, that people on TV hate. And God is saying all throughout Scripture, all throughout many holy texts, I am the immediate ever-present be quiet, be still, be humble, and I'll show you how to get this done. Yeah. And he actually invites us into wrestling with him. Like, Absolutely. Like, yeah, come wrestle with me. Yeah. You want to fight this out? Let's, I'm game. Like, you, let's fight it out. Let's roll around. You know the difference between humans and trees? Humans wrestle. Hmm. Like all the living... And trees wrestle. Oh, not, dude, high five. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that's what's uniquely human about us is we get to wrestle. We, yeah. we choose to wrestle with God. Israel means struggle, wrestles God. Like that's how we grow. That's how we get better. That should be a spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice that's pushed by every pastor. It's like, you guys want to, like, don't take what I'm giving you, what I'm serving you, and, and like it. Like, lose some sleep over this <laughs> Go wrestle and go... Go get beaten up and come back with some war-torn stories, and let's fight this thing out. But yeah. instead, it's like, no, just come be quiet and let him intellectually study be text. Be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Like, lovely sentiments are just corrupted to make us docile and not active participants in our own story. Hmm. And if there's no afterlife, then that's the worst thing you can do to a human being is to have them put blinders on and ignore the amazing beauty that's around us now because, oh, it's fallen. And this yeah. isn't the good stuff. It'll be better. That means everything now, if, if I'm in a fallen world and I will be one day put in a new world, that's devastatingly dark because that means everything right now, everything right now is expendable. Hmm. Every person, everything, every thought, every idea, every conceivable notion that we live with day to day is expendable if it's all corrupted by original sin and will be disposed of and will be anchored in or ushered into a new kingdom. Hmm. You understand? Like the, the stakes here are high. Sure. And when Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing because that's all I do these days. When Jesus says, don't fear the person who can kill your body, but fear the person who can kill your body and soul. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if you're in prison, that sucks. And I'd rather not be in prison. But the, the flip side is like being free, but mental, being in a mental prison, not being comfortable asking questions and learning and sure. submitting to other people. A lot of people that I know that have gone through this deconstruction thing, and I'll say like, I think with every guest, I'm not going to agree with everything uh, or disagree with everything they're saying. So I, I really do enjoy this conversation because it's stretching me to think about some stuff. I've never, you know, like this is an invite. This conversation is an invite to step out of the garden and see the real world and, and, wrestle and see if we see things the same way or pushback. But a lot of people that I know that have gone through this deconstruction movement have actually, 
I get sad for them. I haven't gone, I mean, I've gone through partial, not, I'm not to any deep dives that you have, uh, but the ones I know that have gone deep diving end up extremely hopeless and like the world sucks. There's no eternity. There's no, there's no afterlife. It's the world's after you. It's mean, it's corrupt. It's ruled by a couple powerful and game over <laughs> lights off. You're done. You're worm food. Was that a, was that a horrible thing like this, that losing the hope of what might be to come? Yes. Um, yes. It would be hard to summarize that in a clean way. Because essentially you're losing everything. You're losing your points of reference. Okay. Like, well, like if I walk into a city, I know where like five things are, so I kind of have my bearings. Okay. But all my bearings got lost. Because I realized so much of what I believe, like day-to-day made decisions based on these beliefs believed, mm-hmm. were things I had taken from people just because I trusted them. Like mm-hmm. there were people who, who I liked and still like, and people who I respect and still respect. But I, I just believed them because I liked and respected them. Sure. And so I went through some very resentful, angry phases where like they were my enemy. But at the other side of it, you're like, ah, yeah, I'm 100% responsible for my actions. Yeah. I didn't have to need their approval. I needed their approval. Hmm. I needed their approval. Which is something I see a lot on, on social media now is like these these groups of people that are pissed off at the institution. And it's like, yeah, I get it. But also you're the one that you didn't wrestle for yourself. Like you were, you're just, you're just pissed off that you were one of the sheep, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that awareness really does, it sucks oh, to come to awareness dude, of that. It's the worst thing in the world because it, it is both humiliating. Um, well, it's a lot of things because you, I think, why I, I'm smarter than that person. Why did I fall for their, their garbage? Hmm. Many reasons. Uh, sometimes, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to talk about without getting in particular, without getting into specifics, but the institution my issue with the inst- church as an institution is that it's often pointed to as the bride and we shouldn't condemn it and we shouldn't critique it and she's beautiful and she's awesome mm-hmm. and she's had a hard time, so let's go easy on her. On individuals, yes. On a person, yes. Infinite compassion. But when you can look at a body of believers who are as collectively making as many hypocritical statements as they are, yeah, you need to take a hit. Well, and now when you're you're more easily able to recognize how how the the members of those institutions are collectively standing in what I see as in many instances direct opposition to the teachings of Jesus like 100%. I, I mean I well so here's where I think well here's that's not a sentence here's how I view it I don't think the kingdom of God is an institution is a nation or is anything you can draw a line around and point to Sure. I think that because that's what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. He literally said, you can't see the kingdom. It will be like, oh, here it was, and it will be gone. Yeah. Anytime you can point to a system, it's not the Christ. Mm. And I, I mean that sincerely. Um, I don't, I've, I've made this uh, comparison to you before, but are you familiar with the play places in McDonald's? Yeah. Like when they have the large tubes, the ball pits, and the nets? Yep. When I was a child, I loved those things. Still love those things. There's just not one for my size now. Sure. But I love them. And what I especially loved doing was finding ways to kind of crawl through the net. Because the play places at McDonald's, in my memory, were always completely encased in a net. Yep. But there were tubes inside. 
So I would get out and get in between the tube and the net, and hmm. I would climb around. And if we would play tag, you couldn't catch me. Oh, yeah. That's Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. Huh. The kingdom of God is the thing that's outside the tubes. Huh. So don't go, oh, I have to go all the way around this street to help somebody? No, no, just crawl out and go over here. Oh, you're breaking the law. F*** the law. That person was hungry. Yeah. That's, that's good, it. dude. I think that's the kingdom of God. So when you have people who, who uh, swear by an institution, who go, oh, don't insult the church. The church is, well, you've already missed the point. Hmm. You've already missed the point. Because the church, the, the salt, the thing that preserves the earth, is too busy going around preserving the earth to worry about what people think of them. Hmm. They're going around and making sure the neighbors are fed. They're going around making sure that dog is taken care of. They're going around making sure garbage is picked up. They're going around making sure that delivery is going to get there on time so that person can go to work. That is what this is about. If you want to be a, in the body of Christ, if you want to be part of God, like one with God, as okay. John tells us, well, start helping people. Hmm. Start being the best part of people's day. That's yeah. what God is. If you're an annoying person sitting around saying they're going to hell, nah, get out of here with that garbage. Get out of here with that garbage. Yeah. People aren't going to come to you. They're not going to say, oh, I'm going to hell. Tell me more. F*** you. Yeah. Tell people they're cool. Tell them they're great. Tell them they've had a hard time. Tell them you understand why they did that really thing and you did it last week and no one saw, so you completely empathize with them and you're here. Like, do that. Yeah. Then talk to me about the kingdom of God. But if you're just tithing once a week, and trusting, oh, no, they're feeding people overseas. Oh, no, we got this missionary work, and I'm this small part. Sorry. Never knew you. If we go out to lunch, it's it's very much like this, the I back so. and forth. You yeah. do the majority of the talking because you're infinitely smarter than I am. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I just don't have four kids and two jobs. That's true. I have a wife who does a lot of work, and I drive Uber. Uh, so I have a lot of time to think. Hmm. That's why I have these thoughts. But that's such a gift. Oh, I'm I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Yeah, I'm blessed. Because I mean, I think that is your strongest. You could be working for a, yeah, you could be working at a restaurant serving people and and be okay at it. But I think I think you're wired to think and to pursue and to push limits. And so, I'd say, what's the best job for William? It's like either be like a monk or a desert father, or <laughs> you know, like l lock him in a room as a librarian and let him just go to town. Because that's where I think the world benefits when you come out with thoughts. I would love it. All right, man. We'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today. If you want a link to William's book, Thoughts of a Dying Believer, and I would say it is a it is a priority read. It has changed my mind about many things. Um, I'm going to put a link to that on the website. So if you just go to heathandpursuit.com, there will be a link where you can purchase his book. You can also get it in Amazon. But Thoughts of a Dying Believer by William Turbyfield. Great book. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.